I'd like you to look now in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, and we're in verse number 15 this morning. This is my, I was going to say my third attempt at trying to explain these verses, but I'll just say this is a third part of a five-part series entitled Appalling Preachers. And I'm spending quite a bit of time on this because I think it is a subject that is sorely needed today. And I'm speaking about preachers that are all across this world and across, of course, our country, even in our own city, that are preaching a message that is not the gospel of Christ. And there are people that are confused by preachers that they trust. They're walking away. That's a way to destruction. They've been subtly led astray by a preacher or a pastor who claims that he's speaking for God. And these verses are a warning for us to look out, to beware of false teachers. We have here exposure of their tactics. We have uh, exposure of their intent. It contains here a way to identify them, and it also tells us what will happen to them in the end. And this is so important because there's so much of it that's going on. It's very prevalent in our world today. There are so many types of these people that we have to speak out and we have to give warning because people will be caught off guard and they'll be led into their evil clutches. So let's look at these scriptures again, and we're going to discuss in more detail today the importance of this passage, Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Please stand with me again for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7, verse number 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your people for the opportunity to open your word. And Lord, I just pray that you'd open hearts today. Help us to see in a, more, in a very much clearer way what you'd have us to know by these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the past two messages, I've commented that the end of the Sermon on the Mount has a series of warnings about danger of missing the way of eternal life. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Contrary to what most people believe, there is only one way to God. There's only one way to heaven, one way to eternal life, and we have to be careful that we don't bypass the gate that leads there. We're often called narrow-minded people. Here at Berean Baptist, we're called closed-minded, and that's okay because we have to be as narrow as Jesus was narrow, and we have to be as restrictive in our doctrine as Jesus was restrictive. And this last part of the Sermon on the Mount is very emphatic in its declaration that the way to eternal life is confined to what Jesus has spoken in these two previous chapters. The way to life is only through him. And these 
chapters of what Jesus had said in this sermon previously drives us away from all of our self-sufficiency. We're driven away from human ability. We're driven by our imperfections to seek the only perfection that can be had, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we teach this, we're treading on the devil's territory. The immediate threat to these people that Jesus was speaking to were the scribes and the Pharisees. These were people that had perverted God's law. They claimed that they were speaking for God, but the way that they were teaching was not the way of eternal life. It was the wrong way. Jesus called it a broad path. They appeared to be teachers of righteousness, but they weren't. And Jesus says they're ravening wolves. Well, today we're not concerned with scribes and Pharisees. That's not the problem we have. When the Apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders, he wasn't uh, worried or concerned with scribes and Pharisees either, but he was very concerned. And he said in Acts chapter 20, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So the threat is real. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. There are grievous wolves that are standing by the narrow gate that goes to eternal life, and they're trying to steer you away. They're trying to push you into the wrong direction. They're trying to get you to bypass the way of eternal life. And their way is the path of destruction in hell. Now let me just give you briefly the first two points of the message. Each week we've dealt with a point, and our first one was that a false prophet is dangerous. And the danger is evident by the way that this section begins. Beware of false prophets. And you don't need to beware if there is no danger. The danger is that a false prophet looks like the real thing. He stands in a pulpit and he looks like a real man of God. He may open his Bible. He may read a few verses. He might speak soothing words that comfort your heart. He may even have a large following. He might write best-selling books. But the most dangerous part of him is that he claims to speak for God. He claims that he's given you God's word. He holds up a sign that says this is the way to heaven, but he's really blocking the way to eternal life. And he's dangerous because your soul hangs in the balance. And if you believe him, you can be led to destruction. Then we also looked at this, that a false prophet has a disguise. Jesus says that he comes to you in sheep's clothing. In Jesus' day, a shepherd wore a cloak that was made out of the wool of the sheep, and you could recognize a shepherd by the clothes that he wore, and Jesus used that as a comparison. You could recognize the prophets by the clothes that they wore. The prophets in the Old Testament were known by a particular type of clothing. And so last week we were looking at the example of Elijah and how the Bible says that he wore a coat that was made of camel's hair. When John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, people wondered, could this be the resurrection of Elijah? Is that Jeremiah? Is he one of the other prophets? And they thought that because of the type of clothing that he wore. It was similar, and he had a different message. When Jesus says sheep clothing, he means that as emblematic of a disguise. Sheep will follow the shepherd, and if someone pretends to be the shepherd, if he looks like the shepherd, if he sounds like the shepherd then the sheep will unsuspectingly follow him. And that's also part of the danger of false teachers. They're very good at the disguise. They mask their true intentions, and they are actually, as Jesus says, ravening wolves underneath. 
Now, I hope that you see here that Jesus is not kind towards these types of people. He has scathing words for the scribes and Pharisees. We'll see that as we go through the book of Matthew over in many, many instances where Jesus is not kind to those that are teaching a false doctrine. And then later when the apostles took up this very same subject and they began to preach about it and they began to warn people, they didn't have kind words for people that would dupe others and lead them in a false way. So Jesus is not passive about it. The apostles were not passive about it. And I'd be cheating you of the truth. And I wouldn't be consistent with the New Testament if I just lightly touched on this subject. And I said, well, why can't we all just get along? We can't all get along. We can't get along with false teachers. Now, what we can do, we can pray for their souls. We can desire their salvation. But we're not going to let them have a free pass to make havoc of the truth. So today we're going on to another part and another important teaching concerning appalling preachers. And the third part that I want to talk to you about today is that a false prophet will not disturb you. A false prophet will not bring you a message that upsets you, one that stirs up your soul to to make you aware of the great need that you have, that you must find the way of true righteousness. I need to qualify that maybe somewhat because there are myriads of ways that the devil has to trick people. And sometimes a preacher might actually preach hard against sin. But the end result is that he wants you to believe that you have the ability that you can actually do something about it. And you'll find that there are many workspace ministries that preach obedience and they warn people about sin, but they make people think that if they were to live by some righteous standard that they have assigned, something that they have identified, then they'll be a, people will be able to go to heaven. Now that's actually the very same error of the scribes and the Pharisees. Nobody preached harder against sin than they, but they're always looking for an inward solution. They're always going down inside the man and find out, how can you be better, be a better person, be better this or be better that? And they were looking for self-righteousness and they weren't stirred up to God's righteousness. So you need to be careful of ministries that try to get you to serve God out of a sense of guilt rather than because your heart has changed, because you want to serve him, because you love him. Watch out for those kinds of ministries. And then that type of false teaching always is appealing to some people. Before Martin Luther realized the heresy of Roman Catholicism, he used to flagellate himself. He tried to actually beat the devil out of him. I have heard this recently. I was reading that Pope John Paul II, one of the things that he used to do privately was to beat himself. Well, in that sense, you might be disturbed by false teachers. But ultimately, there's something that's lacking there because you're not disturbed in the right way. You see, when the truth of the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit moves in the heart. And the change that comes about in that person's heart is so radical that you are extremely disturbed by what you hear. Now, we're going to notice today some characteristics of the teachings of false preachers that really aren't disturbing at all. One of the best places that we can go is to the book of Jeremiah. And the Bible references false prophets there many times. Uh, Jeremiah was the prophet of God. He was a true prophet of God. But he was surrounded by all of these false, smooth-talking prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 6, the scene is the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah was on the brink of being taken captive by the Babylonians. A little over a hundred years before this, the Assyrians 
had come and taken Israel, the northern ten tribes, into captivity. And that's because uh, Israel had fallen into idolatry. Well, Judah was in the same position at this point. They were getting into the same types of sins. They were sinking lower and lower into sins of idolatry, just like those northern tribes. And the great problem in Jeremiah's day was that there were false prophets that, and the priests that were leading the people astray, and they were telling them, there's really no cause for alarm. You don't need to be worried about it. There's peace. There's safety. You will continue in the land. Just go like you're going. And they sounded no alarm about the sins of the people. Here's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, they, speaking of the false prophets, they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that means that the prophets and the priests had covered over the sins of the people. Judah had a deep wound that went right down to their souls. They were sinners. And the false prophets, all they were doing was stretching a band-aid over it They were just covering up the wound and not getting to the seriousness of the problem. And so they said, peace, peace. And in reality, the Babylonians were right right there breathing down their necks and it wouldn't be long before the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be torn down. And so these false prophets did not disturb the people. They didn't try to awaken them to their true spiritual condition. And that's what we face with appalling preachers today. There's nothing in the preaching that you hear in many churches today that would ever disturb a sinner. There's nothing there to wake him up to that true condition of how deep in sin that he is and how far away from God that he is. Now we're going to look at a few things today that are missing in the pulpits of the ravening wolves. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Well, I think you have to first be aware of this that in the pulpits of appalling preachers, there is the absence of the Bible. They're not going to disturb you by preaching from the Bible. Now, earlier in our service this morning, I asked you that you would take out your Bibles and that we would stand and read Scripture. And when I began this message, I said, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Open your Bibles. Let's look and see what God's Word has to say. Throughout this message, we'll reference different places of God's Word. If you go to a church where nobody brings a Bible and you're never asked to look up a scripture, that is a huge tip-off that a ravening wolf is standing behind the pulpit. You see, a message from a person that claims to speak for God must be a message that comes right out of the Word of God. You can't speak for God unless you're speaking God's Word. And so that means that a sermon has to be built out of the Word of God. There has to be an interpretation of what's said in the scripture. And so the preacher must take out his Bible. He must read from it. And he must read those scriptures in context. And I hate to say it that even in many of our Baptist churches, the scripture is not preached in the context. Many times a preacher will just flip through the Bible. He'll find a verse in the Old Testament and begin to preach from that that has no real application to what he's talking about. It's not in the context of what the scriptures have said. And so he makes no sense, really, of scripture. The book of Nehemiah tells us exactly how Scripture is to be preached. It says in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And that's how a sermon is to be preached. But preaching today is a lot of storytelling. 
There's a lot of object lessons and feel-good illustrations and sometimes even bogus applications. And the sense of the word is not given, so people really understand what does the Bible actually say. Now, there's a preacher that I greatly respect who said this, teaching people what the Bible means, teaching doctrine, is inherently practical. In fact, until a person understands the implications of a verse or passage, no sound application can be made. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to make personal, individual applications of the truth of Scripture in the heart of the hearer, and he does that infallibly in a way I, as a preacher, cannot. He instructs and directs us in how to put God's Word to work in our lives. So do you understand that? A preacher who spends all of his time telling stories rather than expositing the Word of God is actually circumventing the purpose of Scripture. The Scripture is to show us what we need, what's wrong with us. The Scripture is what brings us to faith. The Scripture is what teaches us what God would have us to do. You can't skip the vital step of reading the Scripture, giving the sense, giving the proper interpretation within the context of God's Word. Now, that's a problem when some people do read the Bible. But perhaps it's even worse with a preacher who skips the reading altogether. He really has no sense of the necessity of the Bible. He doesn't really believe the Bible is true anyway, and many of them don't. The Bible is not worth reading, in their opinion. It's not the infallible, inspired Word of God. The Bible's antiquated. The Bible's out of date for us. It doesn't apply to our lives today. Let me read some scripture, one that comes from the Apostle Peter and some from the Apostle Paul. Peter said, "...being born again..." not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God lives and abides forever. It doesn't go out of date. It's always applicable to our lives. And it's the word of God by which we're saved. So that's the first thing you have to get into your head. You cannot be saved without the word of God. And so a preacher who preaches without the Word of God doesn't have a message that can save. So he won't disturb you by reading from the Word of God. And if he doesn't, how will you know how to be saved? Paul said in Romans chapter 10, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Those scriptures are very clear how important that the preaching of the Bible is to our salvation. And listen to that last verse again. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You can't be saved without the Word of God. Well, let's take that a step further. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You can't be saved without the... Bible, without the truth of Scripture, and you cannot grow up as a Christian without the Word of God. 
When the Bible says that this is for your correction, it's for your reproof, it's for your instruction in righteousness, it prepares you to do the work of God, then how could you ever skip this vital, important step of reading and studying and preaching the Bible? Then we notice also, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You understand that? Inspiration comes from the Greek word theonoustos, and it means God breathed. And if God breathed the word, if it is inspired, if it is the holy word of God, then how could it be wrong? The scripture says all, scripture, A-double-L, all of it is inspired by God. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, is evolution consistent with Christianity? And the answer is no. Either you believe the Bible or you don't. All scripture is inspired. And did you know that the implications of those first 11 chapters of Genesis are woven throughout the scriptures? Some of the very basic teachings that we get from Jesus and the apostles are drawn out of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But there are many people who don't believe the Bible until you get to Genesis chapter 12, and then they're not too sure. But you can't believe John 3.16. You can't believe Acts 4.12. You can't believe Ephesians 2.8-10. You can't believe Romans 10.13. You can't believe any of the Bible unless all of it has been inspired by God. And so that means that the Genesis account of creation is infallibly true. But the false teacher, this appalling preacher, is not going to disturb you with any of that. He won't be insistent on any of this because it really doesn't matter anyway. There he is on the broad path and he's given out the instructions to all these people that are on a super highway to hell and there are no obstacles on that path. And certainly there isn't one, this trivial little step of actually believing that the Bible is true. Now you mark my words, if you attend a church where little or no Bible is read, and where the Bible is not preached in its context, then you have just encountered a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, secondly, in the appalling preacher's pulpit, there is the absence of sin. The appalling preacher will not tell you about sin. He's not going to disturb you about your lifestyle. He's not going to tell you that the way that you live is actually most likely not pleasing to God. So he's not going to hammer on this issue. He's not going to talk about sin And if he does, as I mentioned a moment ago, he'll make you believe that you have the ability to solve sin on your own. Now, that's one preacher that we talked about. The other side is the one that doesn't mention sin at all. Listen to this that comes from an author who compares real biblical teaching to what you hear in most pulpits today. Biblical preaching was God-centered, self-exposing, self-convicting, and life-challenging the direct opposite of today's light, informal sermons that Christianize self-help and entertain better than they convict. There are so many illustrations in today's market-sensitive sermons that the hearer forgets the biblical truth that's being illustrated. So many personal anecdotes that the hearer knows the pastor better than he knows Christ. So many human interest stories that listening to the sermon is easier than reading the Sunday paper. So practical that there's hardly anything to practice. No wonder nominal Christians leave church feeling upbeat. Their self-esteem is safely intact. Their minds and hearts have been sparked and soothed with soundbite theology, Christian maxims, a few practical pointers pointers dealing with self-esteem, kids, or work. 
But the question remains, has the word of God been effectively and faithfully proclaimed, penetrating the comfort zones and the veneer of self-satisfaction about the truth of Jesus Christ? But the message in pulpits today is, we're pretty much okay. There's nothing really too wrong with us. We make some mistakes, but everything will be just fine. Why? Why do they preach such things? Well, we can take it back to this issue. They, they kicked the Bible out of the church long ago, so they're not going to be affected by verses like Romans 3.23. For all have sinned that come short of the glory of God. You're not going to get to that. You won't hear about Ephesians 2.1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. And I don't have time today to turn it into a message, this particular message about total depravity and total inability. They're both Bible doctrines, but you can spot a false teacher because he has a lack of disturbing people about their sins. They don't talk about sin anymore. Now, they may redefine it and make it something else that it's not a biblical description, but they really do not disturb people about where they are in their lives. Now, that in turn leads to the absence of holiness. An appalling preacher is not going to speak about holiness. He's not going to spend any time with personal holiness, and much less would he ever speak about the holiness of God. You see, sin is a problem because of the holiness of God. And if you ever get it down in your soul who God is and how holy God is, you will be terribly disturbed about your sin. But what you do hear a lot of preaching about is the love of God. Oh, yeah, you'll hear about that. You'll hear about messages how God loves everybody. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you and you can't possibly be too bad for God. But hold on just a minute. Doesn't the same Bible that gives us John 3.16 say just two verses later, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Just 20 verses later, it says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And doesn't it say in those sweet psalms of comfort that people like to read, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And doesn't it also say in Psalm 711, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 9, verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. And I could go on with more statements. Many of them were spoken by Jesus himself who points out that the holiness of God has been offended by the sin of man. And those that are in their sins will be condemned to hell. And that leads me to another deficiency of a false, appalling preacher, and that's the absence of hell. When do you hear about preaching on hell anymore? The false prophet never says anything about hell. Now you'll hear him say something like this. People feel bad about themselves already. I mean, we're already depressed, aren't we? Why talk about hell? It's so negative. And I want to preach a positive message. And you'll hear things like that from just about every interview that's ever been done with Joel Osteen. And the same stuff is repeated in pulpits right here in Roner Park, almost verbatim. There are many people that come to our church, and at the first mention of hell, I've seen this happen, the first mention of hell, they get up and walk out of the church. You know, I heard something interesting from one of our members the other day, one of the new members, that said, when I first heard about hell, I was excited. 
Well, that's a strange reaction, isn't it? But you know what she meant? I was excited to see what I was actually saved from. And I'm excited to tell other people about it so they'll know what they can be saved from. That's the reaction you have when you hear about hell. Warn people about it. I can't make it any plainer to you than this. If a preacher will not preach about hell, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. If he's not going to disturb you and let you know that at the end of this life, there are only two places that you can go. One is heaven and one is hell. And folks, by the default of your birth, you're already on your way to hell. If he won't tell you that, if he won't disturb you with that news, if he won't tell you there is a fire in hell where sins will be punished, stay away from him. He's a ravening wolf. Now, Satan loves that because he doesn't want anybody to believe that there is a hell. And if you do believe in it, he certainly doesn't want you to think that you'd actually go there. That can't be right. And so again, do you know why there's that absence of Bible teaching and reading in churches? It's because the Bible speaks about hell. Jesus said that hell was a real place. He said it's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Let me show you. You're in Matthew now. Turn over to the 13th chapter, just a few pages over. And Jesus is speaking and explaining the very same things that I'm talking about today. In fact, Jesus was detailed enough about this to give a parable, an illustration about what he was speaking of. He tried to help people understand this a whole lot better. But what does Jesus say? The one who's the love of the Father, the one who, oh, he's so sweet, he's so good. And we don't understand that the goodness of God also includes a place called hell. Jesus said in Matthew 41, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Who's the Son of Man? Well, that's Jesus speaking of himself. And what will he do? He will send the angels to gather out sinners and cast them into a furnace of fire, and there they're going to suffer in agony. Now, I can try to make that pretty. I try to smooth it over for you so that it doesn't disturb you. But this is what Jesus said. Unless I want to make myself God, I'm not going to change anything that the Bible says. But it gets worse than this, because the Bible also tells us how long that the suffering will last. Now, there's some people who will teach about hell, but they say, it doesn't really last very long. If you do have to go to hell, you just get burned up just like that. It's all over with and it's gone. But is that what the Bible says? Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and Ever, and they have no rest day or night. Is that a little bit disturbing to you? That's why a false preacher won't say anything about it. That's why he avoids preaching the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because if he does, sooner or later, he'll have to come across sin and hell and holiness. Now, I want to close this part of the message with one more characteristic of appalling preachers what's missing from their pulpits and this may bother some of you some of you may be really disturbed by what I'm going to tell you next the next thing that's missing from the pulpit of the appalling preacher is the savior the absence of the savior if you've attended many churches around here and 
across the country, some of, many especially the mega churches, rarely will you find a sermon that's in truth about Jesus. Now, he might be mentioned at the end, tacked on as a little thing we have to do, but there is the absence of the Savior in their preaching. So can you believe a preacher or a church that says, we teach Christ, we are Christians? Do you think that somebody like that would actually absence the Savior from their preaching? What do I mean by this? Well, there are appalling preachers that will not stand up and without a quiver in their voice say, there is no way that you can get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Some of the biggest names in evangelicalism today will not tell you Jesus is the only way that you can get to heaven. Now, before I tell you who won't, and I'm not afraid to name names, Jesus and the apostles pointed out people like this. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about Jesus being the only way to heaven? Well, you know this scripture well. Everybody in this church knows it well. John 14:6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. It's a pretty exclusive statement, isn't it? I don't need to give you a lot of explanation about that one. No man is another way of saying nobody. And if you have trouble with the gender references in the Bible, they'll take off the feminist hat for a minute and take off the politically correct hat for just a minute and realize that people used to have enough common sense to know that the word man is a generic word for human. And he's saying humans cannot get into heaven without Jesus Christ. And if you like the references that we've made so far about, far about sheep and about all these other things and, and the narrow gate, then write down this reference. Write down John chapter 10. When you get home, just read the entire chapter. John chapter 10. Peter said in Acts, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The apostle John said, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now those are some pretty clear statements, aren't they? Let me give you just a few that come from the wolves. Here's a quote from Joel Osteen. He was asked a direct question about whether Jesus is the only way to heaven. And in the context of this, he was asked about Muslims and Jews and Hindus. Can they go to heaven? Even atheists were mentioned. And here's what Joel said. You know what? I'm going to let someone, I'm going to let God be the judge of who goes to heaven and hell. I just, again, I present the truth and I say it every week. You know, I believe it's a relationship with Jesus. But you know what? I'm not going to go around telling everybody else. If they don't want to believe, that's going to be their choice. God has to look at your heart. God's got to look at your heart, and only God knows that. Now, if you ever get a chance, listen to the interview that Joel Osteen did with Larry King, where not once, but multiple times, he had the opportunity to say, Jesus Christ is absolutely the only way that you get to heaven, and he wouldn't do it. Later, there was a public outcry about that, and people started to write in, some of his supporters, and they were wondering, why, Joel, didn't you make such a, make a statement? Make it very clear. And so he apologized for it. But he did not come out with an unequivocal statement that if you are a Muslim, you are a Hindu, you are a Jew, if you are anything else other than a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that you can't possibly go to heaven. Never would he say that. Now, here's a shocker for you. This is a statement made by Billy Graham. 
the most famous evangelist of all time, the one who's been called America's pastor. Does Billy Graham believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Here's what he said. I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. I think James answered that. The apostle James in the first council in Jerusalem, when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know it in their hearts. They know they need something that they don't have, and so they turn to the only light they have, and I think they're saved that they're going to be in heaven with us. Friend, if you can be saved without Christ, what did he come for? Why did Jesus come to die for sin if you can be saved without him? But that's what the false prophet says. That's why you're not going to be disturbed by an appalling preacher because he's not going to tell you Jesus is the only way to heaven and you must believe in him. Not that you're missing something. Not that you can look deep down inside and you can find this thing that you're missing. If you truly believe that, then you'll be saved because God has called you out whether you know about Jesus Christ or not. You know if that's the truth? Stop every missionary that ever went out from a church. Stop him from preaching. Don't let him go to these people that don't know anything about Christ. Don't let him tell them that Jesus is the Savior. They don't actually need him. They just need to believe what they already believe and they'll be all right. And God will call them out because they're sincere in what they believe. Now, let me tell you about somebody else, and this may also shock you, and people would pick me apart for saying this. There are people who think that Mother Teresa is sitting at the right hand of God. The Roman Catholic Church has put her on the fast track to sainthood. Here's what she said about people who received aid from her charity. She said, we never try to convert those who received to Christianity. But in our work, we bear witness to the love of God's presence. And if Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, or agnostics become for this better men, simply better, we will be satisfied. It matters to the individual what church he belongs to. If that individual thinks and believes that this is the only way to God for her or him, this is the way God comes into their life, his life. If he does not know any other way, and if he has no doubt so that he doesn't need to search, then this is his way of salvation. We don't try to convert people to Christianity. And you're a saint sitting on the right hand of God? Whose God is that? It's not the God of this Bible. And that's why we call them false teachers, false apostles. And Jesus warns us about them. Stay away from them and stay away from the churches who teach the same thing. Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. So they have no disturbing doctrines, nothing there about the Bible, nothing about sin. They won't talk about holiness, not about hell, and they won't even make this shocking statement that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's one commentator who wrote, it isn't what they say, it's what they don't ever say. They talk about Jesus and the cross and heaven and Christianity, not sin and hell and mourning and meekness and humility and brokenness. They talk about how to be happy and how to be healed and how to be this and how to be that. They're pleasant. They're nice. They seem thoroughly Christian. They say the right things. Folks, when the preacher comes on TV and he says, something good is going to happen to you today, glory to God. 
And he doesn't tell you about sin. And he doesn't tell you about death and hell. And he doesn't tell you about holiness. And he doesn't make it absolutely clear to you that you will die in your sins without Jesus Christ. Something bad is going to happen to you. And he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now I'm going to come back to this and talk a little bit more about it next week. But I think there's enough in the message today that hopefully you can see a difference. Hopefully you see a difference here. There's enough in what I've said to make it clear to you, I think, that you must turn to Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe in him and truly know him, then you'll die forever in the fires of hell. You'll spend eternity there. So I ask, what what kind of church are you attending? What kinds of preachers do you listen to? Watch out, because the wrong ones are dangerous. They have a disguise. They'll never disturb you with the true doctrines of the Word of God. They'll never tell you about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Watch out. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be in your house today. And Lord, we have to speak the truth of your word. We don't have anything to preach but the Bible. We can't say anything other than what God says. And if people have made up some idea of God, who they think that God is, and they have some kind of picture of God, it can't be the truth unless it comes from exactly what's said in your word. Help us, Lord, to watch out for those who deceive. Help us to know the true way of eternal life. And may we preach it so that people believe and understand. Give the sense of the reading, as the book of Nehemiah says, so that people know that they need Christ as their Savior, and he's the only way they can ever go to heaven. Lord, bless these people today. Strengthen us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.